Hi, welcome to this episode of the Silver Fox Entrepreneurs Podcast. Today I'm talking with an old friend, Andy Clayton. He and I met back in Beijing some 15 years ago. Andy's a sweet spot guru. He's a speaker and a facilitator. And since returning back to the UK, he has become certified as the Petra and Gazelles coach. He's Oxford educated, is now living there. And he's also now devised his own methodology called SODA, which is a way of helping people to save time. So welcome, Andy, to this week's podcast. Welcome to the Silver Fox Entrepreneurs Podcast, the show for mature men with enterprise. Welcome to the Silver Fox Entrepreneurs Podcast. And today I'm delighted to welcome back a good friend from originally Beijing and now back in the UK, Andy Clayton. Andy, welcome. Thank you, Jim. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. And I've invited you on the show because you've always impressed me. You're bilingual, you're an entrepreneur, and you're just a really good person too. Can you just share a little bit about where you're at now, Andy? What are you doing? Sure. Well, I'm 42 and a half. I'm married, have a couple of children um, in their early teenage years, uh, and I live in Oxford. Um, What I do is I have a small coaching company. So we help high growth businesses to align their teams behind strategies. And then we coach them to getting those things done. So I'm very fortunate to work with a lot of really smart entrepreneurs, um, helping them set a very clear direction for their business and bringing their teams together uh, in order to, to strive towards those, those goals and objectives. Now that that's fantastic. And knowing you, you've managed to get that all really nicely organized, but it wasn't always the case, right? I mean, you and I, when we met in China, uh, you were having, some decisions to take about staying in China and the business. Do you just want to walk us through some of the history of how you went from, from Beijing and then back, back to Oxford? Sure. So, I mean, the story of, of my life or those, that period of it is after university, so my very early 20s, I was struck by China and I, I got the China bug in a big way. Went over there and did a couple of years as a VSO. Then I got various jobs and throughout my 20s. I, I progressed professionally in China and, and did quite well. And then when I was 30 years old, I thought that the next big challenge for me would be to set up my own business. So that's, that's what I did. And with a lot of hope in my heart, I, I went after it. Um, but I found it much harder than I'd anticipated. Um, a lot of that was down to me. Uh, I hadn't been an entrepreneur before and I'd under-anticipated how challenging it would be. I also made some bad decisions strategically initially with the first business. And the result was I had to spend years clearing up the mess of that. I had some original investors in the business that had to be exited. I had to reposition the business. And then I ended up in a situation of, of having this very small company with you know no money and very few people. And it just took a really, really long time to, to build and turn that, that business around. So that, that's what I spent most of my 30s doing. Um, in the meantime, I started to fall out of love with China, um, and China itself sort of changed and became, in many ways, a more challenging place to live. Um, also, my son has asthma, and so he was struggling out there. And so I reached the point, sort of in my mid-thirties, whereby I, I knew I I wanted to leave. And so we uh, we reached a point where Harry was getting quite unwell, and so we we moved the family back here. So I ended up in the situation of having sort of a business in China me flying back and forth over here. Um, 
And that the business started to grow, but my situation became untenable. So um, the, the travel and also managing a, a team remotely in, in somewhere as far away as, uh, and challenging as China eventually took its toll. So, yeah, so what that meant is that by the end of my 30s, by the time I was about 40, I, um, I, I just decided to sell that business, um, which, is, which is what I did. And, and who did you sell the business to? Then and how did you do that? How did you exit? Well, it was precipitated by uh, a bit of a, a crisis in the business. What was always the hardest thing for me was if someone in the China team, someone senior in the China team, left, because then I'd have to go over there and fill their role for a while whilst I recruited replacements. And this particular role was was a particularly challenging one, and it made me realise that you know whoever I found to replace, I would constantly face this this risk. And I never wanted to be in that situation of sort of being in hotel rooms and friends' sofas for months on end away from the family whilst I resolved another one of these crises. So that's what precipitated the decision in, in my heart to say, right, I, I need to sell this business. Um, I opted for a quick approach, which meant that I, you know, I, I did realize some value from the business, but not everything that I could have done if I'd maybe spent a couple of years um, getting it back into ship shape and maybe courting a few more uh, acquirers. So I sold it to a direct competitor. And really what they were most interested in was the client book, the team, the operations. It allowed them to get scale in, in a market, which for them they hadn't really had a position in before. So I, I got out. I got out quick. I got out with some money, um, not a life-changing amount. Um, and most importantly, I, I got out clean, You know, by which I mean that there were no liabilities. There were everybody was taken care of, the customers, the, the team members, the acquirers. You know, everybody felt that they'd come out of the situation. I think reasonably well taken care of. Good, well done. That's that's a, a really both a sort of a, an exit with integrity and with opportunity as well. So you got back to the UK, and um, what did you do then? Because you arrived back here, families. All here, or did you manage yeah, we, to? We were already get living here. Yeah. Uh, so once I sold the company, I, I then it was we'd been living here anyhow. So yeah, like I said, I was, I was forty years old, and I sort of realised that I didn't want to do anything China-related again. I was very, very clear about that, and so I had fifteen years of experience, and like you say, the language, the business background, the contacts, and everything in an area that I knew that I couldn't and wouldn't use anymore. So I had to make a pivot. And yeah, so the past two years of my life have been a, a story of making that kind of a transition. And, 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 and how did you decide um, what to do next then, Andy? Because, you know, it's quite interesting that you say that you decided not to go back to China, considering you speak Mandarin, you'd been there for so long. So a decision not to be involved in China, but then what next? Because you've dedicated so much of your, your youth and your career to that market so far. Yeah, well, I mean, I figured that whatever I did that would have a China angle to it would require me to go back sooner or later, either to travel or, or to spend more time there. Because China, like anything, you have to stay current. Right? You have to be constantly returning back to understand what's going on. And also to be relevant to anyone operating that space, it would require travel out there. And also, I, I suppose a part of me had reached a point where I, I suppose I didn't want to be, 
apologist is a, is a strong word, but there was so much that was happening in China and the regime in China and how that society, the direction it's going in. I suppose I, I realized maybe a different value set. And I'll tell you what I, I came out with that was strongest and most positive for me was really a very deep appreciation for what we have here in the UK. I mean, when I was in my early 20s and I left, I, there were sort of disillusionments, right? I found the place being small and, and, and dull and not much going on and all these opinions. And whereas when I came back, I realized what we have here in terms of the freedoms that we enjoy, the values of the society, the good environment that we have, and also actually a great business climate. It, the UK is, is, is a fantastic place to do business. Yeah, it's interesting. So, I found found the same, you know, coming back to the UK, having left at 27, thinking just like you're small and wet and without opportunity <laughs> and coming back to actually join the fresh air and finding a lot of vibrant and creative and entrepreneurial people yeah. uh, in the UK. So it's a real celebration of that. And then so that's that's wonderful. You're able to then kind of enjoy your home country again. What about then deciding what to do next? Because that can be a challenge for everybody, right? Because you're kind of starting from a fresh slate. Mm, that's right, exactly. And so that's that's a really important decision because it then affects the trajectory for the following few years. So I came out of my previous business with... A little bit of money, but really only enough to, to pay off the mortgage and, and you know survive for a year or two, to be honest. So not a huge amount of funds to invest in something big, um, but enough to be able to run at a loss for, for a short period of time if I had to or make a small investment. Um, most importantly, though, I came out of that business with a few insights that I knew I had to apply. So the first was you know, pick something and just to do that, like take the time that it takes to, to choose a thing and, and make the comparisons and do the analyses and then be single-minded about pursuing it and don't get distracted. Because I, in my first business, my original businesses, I'd had these tendencies to sort of to try multiple businesses at the same time and that never worked. So that, that was a key insight. Another insight was don't do it alone. If I'm going to go into a new business, I've, I've done enough business over the years to know all the many, many things that I don't know about new markets. So how to price it? Who are the target customers? What are the sales and marketing channels that are going to work? What type of people do I need to recruit to make this business work? Um, what are the good operating procedures and, and all those sorts of things? And, and I knew that from my previous business that each one of those things had taken such a long time that if I went and invented my own new business, it would in a new market, it would take me forever. So I made the decision to do to do a few things. I, I had been using and also training a certain system for helping high growth companies from a book called Scaling Up. And there's a few guys that I knew that were coaching from one of the best scaling up implementation companies based out of the US called PetroCoach. So I did a deal with the founder over there to take a license for Europe. So essentially, I became a, a franchisee. Um, a licensee. And I made the trade-off, Jim, of I know this isn't going to be my IP and I know I'm not going to own the brand or any of those things. However, if I just replicate what someone else is doing, that will accelerate growth. And so that buys me time because it, it creates a, a cash generating yeah. uh, business, at least in the short term. And well, then think, once I've got that stable, I can then think about long-term you know, equity and, and IP um, value generating 
activities. And that's yeah, where that- I am now. So that, that, that's the result of the past couple of years is now that I have, I have a strong business, um, which supports, you know, me and the family and the team and everything like that. Um, although long term, I will have to take, consider some decisions around how I generate more of my own IP. So that, that's interesting. So it's a, a very smart and focused strategy there in terms of the taking on a franchise. And I think quite a few people do that each year. In fact, I read that in America, some, you know, over half of the people that start businesses later in life are buying over a business that's already in existence or, or a franchise. Can you just share with us a little bit about the, the business model of the franchise? How much do you have to pay to buy it? Do you have a territory? How much revenue do you have to give to the, to the brand owners? That'd be useful to know. Yeah. I mean, I have a very simple arrangement with um, the business that I franchise, which simply involves a percentage revenue split with them. So there's, there's no, whether well, they, there's a nominal, there's a target that they have for me in terms of size of the business. Um, I get to use the brand. I get access to their team. I get all their um, operating procedures and I have regular check-ins. So it's, definitely been a big source of support there um but it means that i haven't had to because developing a brand is actually a very time consuming thing and it's more than just the the visuals of it and figuring out the website and those sorts of things it's about coming up with something that's going to fit the target market and you actually have to have quite a lot of insight about a business about a market in order to be in a position to get a brand that, that fits right so it allowed me to circumvent that that whole process so yeah, it's, it's, it's a split of revenues. Um, I think we had a three-year contract, which is another year to run. I have a European territory license agreement. Um, and I'm assuming that, you know, we'll, we'll roll that over. Now sure the business is bigger, there might be some kind of a renegotiation around those, those percentage splits because obviously that number is, keeps, keeps growing and growing, although um, none of those conversations have uh, started just yet. <laughs> well, I'm sure when they when they had in terms of, can you share? Uh, are you willing to share? Did you have to put cash up front, or was it just a um, you get a territory and then you pay them a ten percent, fifteen percent, twenty percent of the of the revenue? And how do they audit that? I mean, how do you? Is it just an honesty system, or we'll be back after a quick break. Would you like to double your salary without starting another business? The easy way to do this is to join the board of another company. You get well paid for a part-time role. You get all the credibility that comes with being a board member. Plus, you get to hang out with some very cool people and learn how other businesses are dealing with their problems. If you'd like to know more, if you'd like to learn how you get your first board seat within 60 days, just click on the link below as uh, Unnoticed is a gold sponsor of our summit so you get free tickets. Enjoy. I'll see you there. So I didn't have to put cash up front. No, I mean, it's a service-based business. Um, so it's much more about IP. And, you know, they've provided a little bit of business and a few leads, but mostly it's been down to me to, to generate the business over here. Um, so no, I didn't have to put up cash up front. What was, what was the second question? Sorry. 
Well, just about about how they how you monitor uh, uh, if the, you've got oh, a franchise auditing. Do you have to share books? Do they do the invoicing? From a practical point of view, talking to Bob Grace earlier on, he has um, in another episode he works with the Hayes Travel Group, and they they do all the invoicing and the billing, and they remit him at the end of the month uh, his commission. Just wondering how your how your franchise agreement is structured. So by uh, by the contractors, they have the right to come and audit our books. However, in reality, it's a trust-based system. Um, so we send them a report every month, which has got all of our revenues in. We calculate what we therefore owe them based on what's been agreed. And they they accept that. Um, I mean, I think from their point of view, you know, obviously they, they have the right and they could come in and take the time to audit those sorts of things. Um, however, I, I think probably they take the view that it's all an incremental benefit anyway. They don't really have to do very much for that money. They like being able to say that they're a global business now because previously they're just in North America. So that they have that network of coaches in Europe, it's great credibility for the for the business. And I suppose the, the deal, if you like, the trade-off is as long as we don't take up too much of their time, which which we kind of don't, and and you know we're we're participating and and adding in terms of knowledge and IP and um, team participation, and you know we're paying our dues fairly. Then it kind of works for both sides. But they don't have any other licensees like us anywhere in the world. So it's it's kind of so far a one-off deal that was negotiated, and I don't know if there are other people that they're they're talking to in other territories or not. So, Andy, I've got a question. So there are many people, uh, including me, that probably have to do the job to get paid uh, and are maybe in a drain by your sweet spot you know, parlance or a distraction, but it's where they get their money from to pay their bills. But they've got a sweet spot, something they're passionate about, but they haven't managed to monetize it. How, how do people deal with that? How do, you, how do you solve that problem, that conundrum? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. And I would say probably three three answers to that one. The first one is that one of the criteria for something to be a sweet spot is that it must be high value. And so that means that an, an often high value, you know, the euphemism would be that it's impact, that it has a significant influence on, on our lives or on other people's lives. But obviously one of the key measures of value is monetary. So if it's something that isn't going to be able to generate revenue, then you have to ask yourself the question of if, if it's a sweet spot or a distraction. And that can be an uncomfortable one because um, you know, there's many things that we like and enjoy doing and we're good at that don't generate revenue in our lives. And so sometimes it creates this difficult dilemma between you know, do you want to spend time in distractions or do you want to spend time in, in sweet spots? And it's a bit like the Jim Collins hedgehog, hedgehog concept in that it's got to, you know, we've got to be good at it. We've got to um, have passion doing it and it's got to drive our economic engine. It's got to, got to make us money. Now, it isn't always as simple as that because sometimes you have people who have like what's called like a, an emergent sweet spot. So I've, I've started doing this thing, which I, I think I'm good at, uh, and I know I like doing, but it's not making me money yet. 
So when I founded this business, I knew I was good at helping companies to do their coaching and their strategy and their planning sessions. But without a reputation in the market and without a steady stream of leads, it took a long time to actually turn that into a lucrative business. And so the second thing I would say really is about time, is how long will it take? And again, I use a Jim Collins analogy, which is the flywheel. And in the early days of the business, it just takes a really long time to get the first customers, to get the reputation, to get the testimonials, to get enough cash in order to be able to make investments, to be able to start marketing. And it can feel like a really long, hard push. And in the meantime, sometimes you do have to be doing other things in order to, to pay the bills. And gradually, the focus shifts from what was previously being done to the, to the new business. And so that's the period when a lot of resilience and, and patience and application and dedication. And, and you know, if I, I'd be lying if I said that the past two years for me had all been easy. I mean, I, I had enough insight and I've been through businesses enough times to knew that I would get there. But of course, there have been times of self-doubt or getting fed up or, you know, is this going to work out? And so the, the thing that's always kept me going through those times is those moments when I know that it will work, you know, a happy client, even if there's just one and that's not quite enough to pay the bills yet, or, or a positive testimonial. And, and as those data points slowly start to ratchet up, then confidence in the business will return. And then the third point I'd make is about kind of, again, it's to do with skill set and ability, but it takes time to get good at things. And so one of the things about Sweet Spot is about being good. And often if someone's launched a new business or they're going into a new area in their life, they themselves have to, this idea of 10,000 hours, right? You have to do something a lot before you actually become proficient and skilled at it to really be able to, to make it lucrative. And that requires sometimes doing things for free or doing mates rates and um, whilst you're still honing your craft. And again, it's this idea of just having to stick with it and knowing it's a bit like the Rocky montage, isn't it? You've got to put the hours in, do the training and, and keep yourself motivated and, and believe and know that the outcome will get there. And, and so what's... How I would summarize that is you kind of have to search your heart a little bit if you're doing a new thing to see if it's really a good fit or not. It's like, is this something that I'm naturally interested in? It's really got my curiosity. And, and even when I don't have to, I'm I'm reading up about it and I'm I'm looking for sources. Is it something that people that I do it with tell me that I'm I'm good at? And is it something that I feel that I could really do this for a long time rather than I'm just doing it to fill time. And if it does tick those boxes, then it's just a question of consistent, steady application, isn't it? And you just have to kind of live, die, repeat. You, you, you just have to keep going until it, our own abilities develop and our own reputation and, and resources reach the point whereby it it's, has that momentum. And eventually, and, and what I like about the Jim Collins analogy is that flywheel starts to push you you know, and, and, and the people that are working in your team and the customers that, that, that you're serving kind of develop a momentum of their own. And that's when you know you've, you're there and, and, and you've kind of reached the objective that you were looking for. And, and so you mentioned um, as well, Andy, about developing your own IP. I mean, you're an experienced entrepreneur in your own right. You, we were talking earlier on about some of the 
tools and techniques that you're starting to think about that you've originated. You want to share a little bit about those? I think you mentioned uh, gin and tonic or something earlier on. Did I? Gin and tonic? No, <laughs> no I, you, I, I, <laughs> you mentioned soda. You mentioned oh, soda. soda. That's right. Yeah, yeah I just want, so, I want to share about, because you, you're a thinker and you've had some of your own right. thoughts. So just share some of the things that you've been learning in terms of best practice that some of the listeners might find useful for them to actually apply. Sure. Well, I have um, my first book coming out this year, and it's built around an exercise that we've been using with our clients for, for some time now, and they've found extremely popular and beneficial. It's a very simple thing at heart, Jim. It's, it's called Sweet Spot. And it's about each of us has uh, particular skills and abilities that are particular to us. And our sweet spot lies at the overlap between the things that we enjoy doing and like doing and that are high value that have a big impact in our lives and usually you know most people struggle to spend much time in their sweet spot and the reason is because of everything else that we do in life right all the other activities that keep us busy and so this is those are the other three quadrants you've got things which you maybe like doing or you're good at but are low value which are distractions so you know i, I still do a lot of my own financial reporting because I, I quite good at quite like doing it, but it's probably not a very high value task for me to be doing. And then you've got things which are important we feel that we have to be doing, but maybe don't sit within our skill set, uh, which we call drains. So for me, I've done my best at doing my own marketing in my business for some time now, but I'm not very good at it. And so a lot of it doesn't get done, doesn't get done very well. And it, it gets me down. So I've, I've now actually hired somebody to take that from me. And so we're finally seeing progress and development there. And then you've got the disasters, right, which are things which, so for example, this week, our administrator is on holiday. Well, she knows she's had an operation. And so I find myself doing travel bookings and uh, you know, drafting agreements, some of those things that I, I gave up doing some time ago. And so that the trick in life, particularly as an entrepreneur, is this constant process of moving towards the top right-hand corner there, of eliminating distractions, drains, and disasters so that we can spend more time uh, in our sweet spot. And that changes over time. You know, so what we find is once we get into a sweet spot area, it then divides into four. And also as we get good at things and as our priorities change in life, we, um, we, we, we're constantly discovering where that area in the top right-hand corner is. So as an exercise, you know, you, you do it by identifying where your sweet spot is, what activities you're doing that taking up time and energy that you could reduce or eliminate. And yeah, we've come up with this, this acronym SODA for how you can go about eliminating or reducing tasks that you're spending time on that aren't in your sweet spot. So it stands for stop, outsource, delegate, and automate. And those are the four ways that you can get rid of work. So a lot of things you can just you know, stop doing. It's about setting good boundaries. It's about saying no to things. Um, Outsourcing, there are so many opportunities these days for using external service providers to take work off us. And that may be freelancers, it may be expert agencies, but also a lot of it these days is stuff like, you know, all the door-to-door deliveries. You don't even have to go to shops anymore or do a lot of the kind of um, menial things that these days can, can be brought to your door. Delegate is all about handing stuff over to team members, which sometimes people find hard because it means that you have to actually take the time to go and find somebody and train them how to do it and then trust them to get on with it. And then automate is all about using software and robots and algorithms. So um, 
for example, we started using this task management software a few months ago called Monday.com, and it's reduced our internal email traffic by like 70 or 80 percent. But with those, you do have to take on financial commitment of, um, often and, and usually something that, that you're then tied into for a while. So the thing with, with Sweet Spot is it's an exercise and you can do it pretty quickly, 20, 30 minutes, you can get immediate benefits. I mean, one CEO I worked with, he, he saved up five full days from his calendar just by doing it once. But the real benefit actually comes in doing it again and again and, and it's a repeated habit. And it changes your mindset and your thinking and, and decisions that you make every day. So it's a guy I've, I've done it with a few times and he found himself he stopped driving anyway. He just took taxis and Ubers and trains because he could actually work in that time. Or he'd make decisions about whether he was going to cook for himself or go to a restaurant. And, and he realized that for him, the key was to, to put a price on his time. And anything that was less than that, he would find someone else to do it for him some, some way or another. And then using it with the team. So if you're an entrepreneur and you're running a business, regularly sitting down and, and going through the sweet spot activity with them, means that it improves their productivity and takes off their plates the things that, that are frustrating them or wasting their time. And also, it means that there's a conversation about the direction of personal development for each member of the team. So I remember years ago, I had a finance manager in the early days of the business. You know, She was doing finance and HR and import-export and, and operations. And it took us a couple of years, but after we'd done her, her sweet spot activity together, she said, I really just want to focus on, on finance. So we had to grow the company and recruit people in and, and gradually delegate those functions out. And, and two years later, she was just doing finance. And then, like I say, finance then divides into four, doesn't it? And, and so within that, we then had to go through another sweet spot to identify you know, financial management or accounting or treasury. So we have the book coming out this year. We've got the, the website launching, www.sweetspot.guru. Um, and we're doing a lot of workshops and, and public speaking events around the launch and sweet spot. Andy, that sounds both informative and inspirational. And I think you've given me a lot of uh, food for thought as well about what I do and spend my time doing. So you've mentioned sweetspot.guru. Uh, and how else can people find out about you, Andy? Where can they track you down? So the main business that I run is called PetraCoach. So www.petracoach.com. Um, we're up on there um, along with the US coaches. That's where you can find more information about what the, what the main business does. Andy, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom and your insight and really impressive life journey. And I, I've always admired how you've managed to be focused and creative, but also really have integrity in the way that you're doing your business and your life. So thank you very much for sharing the mic with me today. Thank you very much, Jim. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, do please rate it and share it with your dad, stepdad, son, brother, uncle, boss, colleague, friend, or anyone else who still has a business in them. Sharing is caring, and best of all, it's free. For more information about our entrepreneurial community, visit silverfoxentrepreneurs.life.